0: Going to invite you to turn with me back into Hebrews. We took a brief break, but we are going to dive in to Hebrews again. And we're going to be in Hebrews 12, just the first two verses of Hebrews 12. And I will tell you, I love these two verses. I was actually, I don't know how long ago, a while ago now, I was baptized, and these are the verses that I decided to share when I was baptized. Because I Read them, and even as a baby Christian, I recognized that these verses basically summarize what it means to be a Christian and what I'm going to be doing as a Christian. And I had friends who had been walking with the Lord for like five, six, seven years, and at the time, I was like, whoa, that's so long. And I looked up to them, and I thought that was amazing, and I still think it's amazing. And now I see that actually... That is just what happens throughout your entire life. Day by day, you walk with the Lord, trusting him to sustain you. And so I recognized that, but I also had expectations. And it, honestly, if I think back to myself those years ago, and the expectations I had for what it meant to be a Christian we're probably a little bit out of proportion to what reality is. And so I think that's actually very common. And I think we can respond in different ways to it. And here's specifically what I meant, or what I mean by saying that, if back when I first became a Christian, if I saw my life and some of the things that I'm still struggling with, I would be very disappointed in myself. Like my expectations, because the gospel of grace and God's um, person as he revealed himself in Jesus were so powerful as they were fresh to me. I was like, well, yeah, I'm going to lay down anything to follow him. But then as you walk as a Christian, you realize, oh, that means like these tiny little things that just are part of who I am that I don't even recognize That means these things that are so much attached to my desires that I feel like I have to do it every day, and you might as well ask me to stop breathing. These are the sins that we're asked to lay down. And so now, as I think about it, I can still see God's grace, and I actually appreciate more and more the supernatural power it takes to endure to continue to run the race. That's what we're gonna talk about this morning. So let's go ahead and read these two verses, and then we'll go to the Lord together. Hebrews 12, verses one and two. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Please pray with me. Father, we are running, and we're tired. And we feel that. And yet, sometimes it feels like we're running without a compass. We're running on a track that is not the race that we want to be on. And so, God, we acknowledge our fatigue. We acknowledge our um, disorientation. We acknowledge the the fact that oftentimes we get lost, and we thank you, Lord, for giving us these um, very concrete, practical things to help us finish the race. But even more than that, Lord, we thank you for providing to us your Son, that we can look to him. And so, Lord, help us do that this morning. Help us look to Jesus. Help us to remember that he is our, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And help us to trust that and to keep on trusting it. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are on a race. We're on a journey. That's one of the major enduring themes of the book of Hebrews. That all of life is a race or a journey. And so often during the book, the author encourages us to endure, to persevere, to keep going. And that has been happening throughout the book. And now he's actually revisiting, just in these two verses, he's revisiting kind of everything that he's talked about before. He's going to bring up Jesus, who he's identified as the eternal word of God. He's going to talk about how Jesus has dealt with the problem of sin as our great high priest. And he's going to talk about how he reigns as an eternal king. And so all of that is in here, but here is the danger of these two verses, is that they're packed. We could literally just think about this for years and years and still just be scratching the surface. And so for this morning, I want us to approach this passage with a little bit of simplicity that'll help us glean something, if not every single thing, from it. And so I want to pick up that idea of us on a race and see what the author is doing when he identifies a problem that we encounter on our race, something that hinders us, something that prevents us from running. And so we're going to talk about the problem of sin. That's what it is. It's the problem of sin. We're going to talk about the solution for sin. And we're going to talk about the end of sin. So the problem of sin, the solution of sin, and the end of sin, all in the context of thus running this race of faith, of having faith. And so let's talk about the problem of sin. And if I, as I was thinking about this and thinking about for my own life, I have a fear for us. I have a fear for myself, and that is that I am very content to make treaties with sin in my life. I'm very content to establish ceasefires, to say, you know what, let's just, let's just chill out a little bit, and I'm not going to, you know, we'll just, you don't hurt me, I'm not going to hurt you, we'll be okay. And it creates, it kind of lulls us to sleep. And sin will do that. It'll go into kind of like a hibernation mode oftentimes. And what I mean by that is that it might not be manifesting actively, outwardly in your behavior, but it's still there. It's still present. And so we can get lulled into thinking that sin is dealt with in our lives, when in fact it's just waiting. And more than that, it's actively using that, um, that fatigue or that kind of numbness that you feel towards it to bring about your ultimate destruction. Here's an illustration for this. This is probably a huge over- oversimplification, but it's how I understand part of World War II. And that is that in England, Neville Chamberlain, the prime minister saw the threat of Hitler and Nazi Germany rising, and he essentially was looking for a way to not have to fight them. He's like, okay, they're not really good, they're not great, but wouldn't it be better if we just had peace? If we establish some type of treaty, how can we appease Hitler and the spread of Nazi Germany so that it's still we can still exist and they can exist? We'll coexist together. And so he essentially made a determination that like the Nazis aren't that bad. Like they're not ideal, but like I think we can live in harmony with them. And this was despite so much evidence that was happening. And so what happened was you had, um, first of all, the British Parliament completely lost trust and confidence in him. And then you had kind of the rise of this really brash figure, Winston Churchill, who identified the danger of Hitler and realized that there is no treaty with him because he's coming to destroy us. He is coming to raise a Nazi flag here in the UK. He's coming to take over. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, it's just a little bit easier to make a treaty. And so we have a lot of Neville Chamberlain in us when it comes to how we approach sin in our life. And I get that, it's me too because when i get a look into my heart into the sin that's there and when i say sin i'm not talking about just like little behaviors or even big behaviors i'm talking about a disposition of rebellion against god it's something that is actually more than just my behavior but it's my behavior that is acting out of a nature it's a desire that is opposed to god that's overwhelming. (laughs) I don't want to fight that. That's going to mean like I have to suffer and I have to do that consistently and I have to wage war against that for my entire life. And so we kind of convince ourselves, maybe it'll just be easier if I kind of get it under control and then I'll just live externally, knowing that internally it's still there. And the problem with that is that sin is a much more dangerous enemy than Nazi Germany. And it wants to destroy you. And so the author of Hebrews identifying this and seeing it as a problem It's a major issue in living the Christian life. He reminds the audience of what he has just talked about, this cloud of witnesses going back into the Old Testament and going throughout the whole history of God's people and showing them, here are people who were faithful to the end. So you're surrounded by that cloud, and cloud is an interesting word because it conjures up the image of the Spirit hovering over Mount Sinai. It's the presence of God going with God's people. And so the author does this intentionally to say, this cloud of witnesses is actually inhabited and protected and sheltered and provided for by God, by His Spirit. We're surrounded by that cloud. We are In that cloud the very end of verse of chapter 10 he says we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who persevere and save their souls then he talks about all of the people in the family history of God's people who have done that he says we're surrounded by that and this would be important for this people because remember this community is having people who are kind of like punching out of the race. They're not just making treaties with sin, but they're actually saying, you know what, I think there's a different way than trusting Jesus to solve this problem of sin. And so they were leaving the church, and it's causing great doubt and great turmoil in this community. And so the author reminds them, you are of those who persevere, who keep going. And so if you are those who keep going, lay aside the weight. Lay aside the sin, which clings so closely. And so he turns their attention to the fact that if you are in a race, then just think of it very simply It's a very simple illustration. If somebody is running a race, they're not going to run it with a backpack on. They're not going to run it with extra clothes on. They're going to do everything that they can do, take off everything extra that they can take off to finish that race as quickly as they can, because their aim is finishing the race, Their aim is to complete their task. And so one of the things that the author is communicating is quite simply like, focus yourself, focus yourself. Get rid of things that are distracting you. So if you look at your life and we'll talk more about this in a second because it's really important. But if you look at your life and you understand this perspective, that all of life is this race of faith, this is the whole its the whole ball of wax, finishing your life faithfully. Then get rid of anything that is distracting you from that. Get rid of anything that might tempt you to letting go of that towards walking away, towards, towards turning away from it. Lay it aside. Get rid of the extra weight. But it's not just weight, it's also sin. And it's sin that clings so closely. And so this is where for me, I was like, this is so hard to do. Because it's so intertwined with who we are. Sin is not easily identifiable, in other words. I think we sometimes like to imagine that sin is just easily identifiable. It's like, oh yeah, I find a character flaw, I eliminate it, and then I'm good. Okay, maybe. The problem is that you don't need Jesus to do any of that. That's one problem. The second problem is that there will always be another character flaw. I know somebody right now who is going through um, kind of a stage of recovery, and in identifying alcohol as a problem, she was like, okay, I'm gonna eliminate that, and did it. It's not drinking anymore, it's really good, nothing wrong with that, it's a very good thing. And then she's like, what else is wrong with me? I'm gonna tackle that, and then the next thing. And the next thing. And pretty soon, what all of us have to come to terms with at some point is that it's not these things that are the problem, but it's me. This is who I am. And so then you're faced with a different problem. I need to be a new person. I need to recreate myself. And so some people try to do that in their own strength, by their own power. Even people who are Christians. They think that before they can look to Jesus, they have to lay aside the weight and the sin that clings so closely. But that's not what this passage is saying. And this is where we get the second point, the solution for sin. And it's, it's really the heart of this passage. It's look to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, who's the founder and perfecter of our faith. Let's deal with him being the founder and perfecter of our faith on the front end. This is why we don't have to wait to look to Jesus. He founded your faith knowing that you're imperfect, knowing that you're burdened, that you have this sin on you. He authored your faith, gave it to you as a gift. And so he's not expecting you to make yourself whole before coming to him. And very clearly what the author is saying is actually what you do to make yourself whole is look to Jesus. Look to him. And that's what will actually help you identify your sin and cast it aside. To lay it down, to walk away from it. You can't do it any other way. This is, this is the only way it works. And this I think is frustrating. It's frustrating for me because I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, what do you mean, look to Jesus? Like that, like where? Where do I look to him? I'll do it. And I think we get like that. And here is, here is why I think we do that. I think we expect this to be quick and simple and a one-time thing. It's like, let me look to Jesus, and then I'll be good. And notice, it's not look to Jesus that one time. It's looking to Jesus. You run the race that is set before you by looking to Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. The word looking here is basically look up, look away, and then fix your gaze on Jesus. And so, yeah, we get frustrated when we take a glance at Jesus and then we go back to just kind of living our life. And we're like, well, that didn't work. And here's why that doesn't work. Because you're not looking to him. You're looking at him. You're looking at him from a critical perspective. You're looking at him from a perspective of like, okay, let's see if this will work. You're looking at him, but you are still the authority of your own life. And so you keep going. And there's nothing to lay down. And so you can interact with the Bible. You can interact with the Christian faith from that perspective of looking at Jesus. But still keeping him at a distance. But when you look to Jesus you are looking to someone who has complete and utter control of your life. When you're looking to Jesus, you are looking to him because you have realized there's nowhere else for you to go. You know that you are desperate for what he offers. You know that you need him so completely and desperately that you trust him that you lay down everything else and you focus on him. You're not worried about how busy you are. You're not worried about what impact it might have for your social life or what impact it might have on your career because you see so perfectly clearly your need for him. I was reminded of this um, this weekend. I was taking a class. I was auditing it just doing, I was interested in it, so, you know, and it's bioethics, <laughs> and I've I'd never, I'd, I've never taken a class like that, um, and it was offered through the seminary where I graduated, and it was wonderful, and one of the instructors is a doctor, and he's a Christian doctor, and he was talking in a way, um, and he used this language, the patient-doctor encounter, And as he was talking about it, you could see how sacred it was to him. Because he had experienced what it was like for dying and sick people to come to him in a complete position of trust. One of the really scary things about this class was he said that we are more and more moving to a complete loss of that encounter. Because in his own practice, and just in trends that he's seeing in the medical um, education system, in their ethical system, is that one of the things that's happening is that now autonomy is the main principle for medical ethics. And what that means is that the patients are coming to the doctors from a position of their own authority. And so this is something that we do with Jesus. It made such, it made such sense to me. It's like we don't wanna lose control. We don't want to have to trust somebody like that. And so we come to Jesus with kind of a list of things. Yeah, you can have that and that and that, and I want you to do this and this and this, but this is mine. I'm not gonna lay it aside. And so, when you interact with Scripture, when you interact in prayer, when you interact with community, you're reserving that part. And you're preventing Jesus from having it. And you're looking at him. And eventually, you'll come to the realization that that does not work. It won't work. You have to look to him. And every single time that you come to Him and you look to Him, He will deliver you. You will see Him. Ask for that. That's something that is so precious. There's nothing better than that encounter of the great physician. And He's healing us out of death, not sickness. He's building new life into us. And so if that's something that you want, if that's something that you want more and more of, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. Go to him. Recognize your need. How desperate you are for that. And go to him. And he's also the perfecter of our faith. We look to Jesus, and we see Jesus specifically in his work on the cross. That's where the author moves our gaze. Look to Jesus. Look to the crucified Jesus. Look to his work of crucifixion. He endured the cross, despising the shame. Here's what that means. It means that Jesus went to the cross because he hated what sin has done to us. He despised the shame of our sin so much that he died to end it. And that is how he perfects our faith. As we look to Jesus and we see him and what he has done to our sin. It is finished. The race that you're running is one of joy. It's not one of earning God's love. It's one of running in God's love further along into God's love. And so I want I want to ask you, what do you see when you look to Jesus? What do you see when you look at him? Do you see his eyes? Do you see his eyes that have seen you completely, utterly, the worst parts about you, seen everything about who you are, what you think, what you do, what you believe, and from eternity put his love on you and chose you? Do you see his hands? Do you see his hands that came into this world that left his rightful place and put on human flesh and came as a servant and washed feet of people who would betray him, who gave food to people who would turn him over to be executed, hands that would ultimately be pierced, For you. Do you see his hands? Do you see his heart? The heart of Christ for sinners, for sufferers, who longs to be with you, who longs for you to look up, who does not want you to look down in shame, but to look up at him who wants to meet you in your greatest moment of need. Do you see that? That's who we're called to look to. Look to him. And one of the things that happens when you look to him is you see the end of our sin. The end of our sin. The end of the race. We look up to see Jesus... Is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And he's seated there enjoying his reward. He's enjoying the very thing that allowed him to endure the cross, the joy that was set before him. What is the joy that was set before Jesus? It was to please his Father, it was to perfectly trust his Father, to obey his Father. To enjoy the love of the triune God. The power and the beauty of God's Trinitarian love. It's the joy that was set before him. As he took on human flesh, he did something though. He was doing that not for his divine nature, as if he could add to perfection. But he was doing that for His human nature as our representative. So here's what that means. The joy that was set before us, we get pulled into. He pulls us into this beautiful, fulfilling, satisfying, eternal love. He involves humanity. His faithfulness is ours. His reward is ours. The joy that was set before him allowed him to endure the most horrific torture of soul and body that we could ever imagine. Look to him. He is no longer suffering. He's no longer fraught with uncertainty about how his ministry was going to work. He was no longer worried about what it would feel like to take on the weight of sin. He is now happily, beautifully, at the right hand of God, praying for us, yearning for us, causing our faith to flourish, bringing it about in real time. He's sitting down. He's resting. So when you look to Jesus, he's going to pull you into that same type of rest. And yes, it's paradoxical. We're still running. (laughs) We're still running this race. But we are doing so as we look at the rest that we are being brought into. And we get to experience it progressively. We get to experience it even today. It's one of the important things for us to be reminded of, of what it means to break from our work and to rest. Is because even as we run this race, even as we still have work to do, we're acknowledging we have rest with Jesus. That he has already accomplished the end of our faith. And it's free from sin. There will be an end to our sin. And we will be seated with God at his right hand with his eternal son. And so there's a few things in here as I think about like, okay, so what do we do? Sometimes that's a question, you know, that's great, but what do we do? And I think the first thing I want to say about that is be careful not to turn this into a to-do list because you will think, oh, well, this is something that like I'll go home and I'll do this week. And then next week I'll be ready. And this is something that um, it's not going to work that way. So I want us, here's what I want you to do. I want us to do as a church. I want us to either maybe for the first time or Again, to become desperate for Jesus, to see your need for Him, to throw yourself at His mercy, to recognize that you aren't able to fix yourself. You're not able to bring yourself into His presence, and yet He has called you. And so, recover your desperate need for Jesus. Secondly, I want you to continue to ask for that and make that a priority for your entire Christian life. If you notice yourself becoming numb to Jesus' work on your behalf, think of that as a major check engine light where you need to stop. You need to figure out what's going on. Because you are at risk of not finishing that race. Because if you don't need Jesus, you won't follow him. You won't continue to trust him. And then finally, do it together. This entire section is written in the plural. So church, we need each other to do this. This is not an individualistic relationship, that it's just me and Jesus. It's not just you and Jesus. It is us together. Think of your life in this community. Who is helping you to look to Jesus every week, every day? Who are you helping to look to Jesus every week and every day? Make sure that our church doesn't do a really good job of being with each other without helping one another look to Jesus. Make sure that we're not just really good friends, but that we are friends who show each other Jesus in our moments of need, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our suffering, that we don't just hug We don't just show up. We do those things. Those things are crucial. But that we pray. We remind each other of God's love. We show one another our Savior. And we help each other look to him. Do that. Pursue that. Make that a priority. That's going to be long, hard work. That doesn't happen easily or quickly. But it's necessary And it's good. And it's the exact example that we see in Christ that Jesus was not content to just simply accomplish as if he could accomplish the Father's will without bringing us into it. That's how closely united our desire for each other should be. It doesn't make sense for us to have an individual relationship with Jesus that doesn't involve each other. Because that's not God's will. That's not what he wants for us. And so do it together. Pursue that with one another. Think about the ways that you can help another person in this church look to Jesus. How can you do that? How can you help them lay down their sin How can you help them lay aside the weight that clutters our race of faith? And the Lord will meet you in it, and he joins us in that work. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us alone. That the race that you have set before us, as we think about it and as we look at it, it's hard it's tiring. Sometimes we don't even know why we're running it still. And yet, Lord, you give us the grace of the, this instruction to look at Jesus. And Lord, we praise you for the mystery of making Jesus visible to us, that his work was not hidden from us, but it was on display his life was lived publicly, he was lifted up, his death was public for us, that we could see it, that we could trust it, that we could receive it, that we could pass it on to the next generation. And so Lord, I ask that you would help us, help, help this church to look to Jesus and continue looking to him as we run this race and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.